everyone. My name is Dana Peterson, and this is the Rural Leaders Podcast. My co-host and I, Richard Fordyce, are wanting to inspire you with stories from around rural America um, to equip you with programs, tools, and resources, and to encourage you to act to make your community better. Today, we're um, interviewing a guest from California, so I'm excited to be here with you, Richard. I am too, Dana, and, and hello. Um, you know, as we've said, this this uh, Rural Leaders podcast is an opportunity to to really bring forward and highlight some great things that are happening in rural America. It also is, um, you know, I think some of our episodes have been informational, like what is happening in some place in rural America, and bringing that information forward. And as Dana indicated, it is an opportunity then for folks to either use that. Um, in their local communities to act. Um, you know, we do hope to inspire and bring really uh, interesting folks um, uh, to have you listen to what they have to say. Uh, because I would imagine, Dana, that something happening uh, in California might be something of interest to a whole bunch of folks that live all, all over the country. So um, so today's going to be a lot of fun and uh, and very interesting, I'm sure. It will be. It will be. And from my seat in Kansas, I know there are some uh, very interesting things going on with the water situation in California that definitely apply to what's happening with water here in Kansas. So I look forward to learning more about that. But I know we've been really warm and, and hot here in Kansas. How are things in Missouri for you, Richard? Well, the same way, Dana. Uh, it's been very, it's been very warm. We we've been fortunate, at least in our part of the state, to get to to get some rain occasionally. Uh, certainly not, it's not muddy, but it. Uh, but we have had some rain. I know other parts of the state, and and I know going over your direction, over toward, um, you know, even just across the state line into Kansas. I know it's dry, and then boy, looked at the drought monitor this morning or yesterday morning. It came out. The new one came out yesterday, and. Those areas of red and orange and yellow, you know, remember we looked at those at USDA all the time. Those areas are certainly getting bigger. So I don't know. It, it is summertime, though. It is in the depths, the dog days of summer, as we like to say here. Yeah, it so, is. Um, yeah. I do think I've gotten some feedback on the podcast, Richard. Um, continue to hear from folks who are tuning in and listening and appreciating uh, the perspectives from our from our guests. Um, we are kind of working on some of the connectivity issues. As, as rural Americans know, connectivity can be an issue. Um, so we continue to try to tighten up the, the delay that we have seen um, within our previous podcasts. And I know our, our producing team is doing some work on that as well. Yeah, our, our producing team is fantastic. Um, you know, they they kind of let us do our thing and then they fix it after we're done. Um, but <laughs> no, I, yeah, I, 
we are. I mean, we are. And and I think, you know, each each episode gets a little better. You know, Dana and I told you all when we started, we're not professional broadcasters. And <laughs> um, but we're we're feeling a little more comfortable, I think. So, you know, we hope you stay with us. And and I too have been getting some feedback, Dana. It's the they they really like the episodes. Um uh, the the content, uh, the things that we're making folks aware of or bringing up um, to be, you know, highlighted, um, folks enjoy that. And they're um, obviously most people are not going to give you bad feedback. Right. But um, but yeah. it's but it's been it's been good so far. And, and and just to Dana's point, you know, stay patient with us. We're we're trying. Dana and I are trying to get better. Uh, of, of having this conversation around a dining room table uh, on Sunday after church. That's right. That's right. Well, give us a, a taste of, of what we're going to be talking about today, Richard. Absolutely. So we've got a we've got a really great guest today, uh, a friend of both mine and Dana's um, from California. I know we we hinted on that a little bit. Um, but someone who is very involved in water issues, whether that's water usage, water development, um, water policy. Uh, we worked together at USDA for a period of time, and then she was called into Washington um, to work on water issues um, uh, really across a lot of different fronts. And so uh, Aubrey Betancourt from California will be our guest and we're going to learn more from Aubrey after you hear this message. We'll be right back. When I was in foster care, I never knew when I would have to move. So I always had my suitcase ready to go. Then one day I was adopted. My new parents opened their hearts and home to me. My parents cook my favorite breakfast for me every morning. My parents take me on trips I never thought I would go on. They gave me a home and an even better reason to use that suitcase. My parents aren't perfect, but they're perfect for me. People do some pretty cool things in their 40s and 50s. Why should saving for retirement be any different? So wherever you are in your retirement savings journey, head to aceyourretirement.org and start chatting with Avo today. That's aceyourretirement.org. Welcome back to the Rural Leaders Podcast. Uh, my name is Richard Fordyce, and along with my co-host Dana Peterson, and we have uh, we have a guest today that is um, certainly every time I talk to her, I learn something new. Uh, especially, I learn something new about a part of the country, you know, that's a ways away from Missouri. And our guest today is is Aubrey Betancourt. Aubrey is currently the CEO of the California Almond Alliance. Uh, certainly, if you know anything about agriculture in California um, and water, the that that water and the almond growers are certainly linked, um, and water is critically important to almond production and a whole bunch of other things. Not only in the ag sector there in California, but obviously across the, the population of that state. So, I want to just say that Aubrey uh, worked with us together at USDA for a period of time as the state executive director for the Farm Service Agency in California, and then went on to bigger and better things in Washington, D.C., working on all issues water. She's back home in her home state of California, and we're going to talk water. It's it's dry in a lot of places. There's certainly 
our demands on water in some cases like we've never really seen before. And Aubrey's got a lot of years involved, um, both advocating for water issues and 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 um, and advocating for improvements around water availability and, and distribution. So Aubrey, welcome to the Rural Leader Podcast. Um, give us uh, give us a synopsis of what's on what's going on on the ground in California uh, related to water and and a lot of the concerns, frankly, that we hear here in the Midwest. We hear are going on in California. Sure. Well, first of all, thank you both for uh, the opportunity to be here. When you contacted me and said you had this podcast going, I thought, that's perfect. They have such great radio voice. This is great. Um, so I'm glad to be here and, uh, and to be participating. And, and what a brilliant concept. Can't thank you enough. I think um, truly, whether you're talking about in agriculture or just across the spectrum right now in our communities, I think leadership is something we should really be investing in what, what we desperately need. Uh, in these times, uh, seems like everywhere we turn, there's challenge, um, and in that, there's opportunity. And I think that that kind of brings me to uh, to, to your question. Um, there's a there's an old phrase. I'm sure some of you have heard it. Uh, it's attributed to Mark Twain, though. A lot of the old water wonks and and water buffaloes here in California they argue over that. But From uh, Missouri, we like to say whiskey's for drinking and water is for fighting over. <laughs> <laughs> Pardon? Yeah. Uh, Mark Twain was from Missouri. So, I'm just going to yep. That's right. Yes, he was. Yes, he was. So, uh, but, uh, you know, he spent a lot of time out here too. And, and he coined that phrase in California, you know, whiskey's for drinking and water's for fighting over. And in yeah. some ways it's still very true. Uh, so I, I think one of the things to always take a step back before we talk about, oh, California's crazy and they have all these water issues and their priorities are all screwed up. Um, I'm not going to argue with you on any of things that I just said. <laughs> My state is crazy. Uh, we have a high tolerance for crazy because if you ever come out here, it's, it's actually quite lovely. Um, uh, a lot of great diversity. And if you're a farmer, it's incredibly diverse. We have over 400 commodities grown here. Um, we're number one ag state in the United States of the fifth largest global economy. Um, we have uh, we are the largest dairy state, interestingly enough, and that's my largest competitor in terms of the largest commodity in the state. Uh, so almonds and, and dairy. Um, but it's important to kind of take a step back and go into water 101 to really understand why California's water situation is always insane. So the first rule of California water is to realize it's a big state, right? It takes up most of the West Coast and two thirds of the rain and snow is in the northern third of the state and two thirds of the economy and population is in the Southern two thirds of the state. And the state became this agricultural powerhouse, this economic powerhouse within less than a hundred years because of the ability to capture that rain and snow and move it 365 days a year from the North to the South to store the water in times of wet and to deliver it in times of dry uh, we're in a Mediterranean climate, so it is very common for our, for our, we stop having rain basically from about May or April, May, all the way through October, November, really November is when we start seeing uh, precipitation again. And we get our, we're one of only about eight places in the world that can generate economic activity off of snowmelt when it's captured and stored and delivered. And so the system was really designed because we knew this climate here. Our forefathers knew this climate here. The Spaniards knew this climate here. There's even signs that indigenous populations knew this climate here. 
Uh, reservoirs across the Southwest and the Mediterranean rest um, have been found. Irrigation has been found uh, at indigenous populations. So the idea was that you could protect yourself from flood, store that water in strategic locations and deliver it 365 days a year. And that that system would, would actually hold you over for three years. So the second rule of California water is we design these systems of reservoirs and dams and, and canals and aqueducts. Uh, and it was designed and implemented at the early part of the 20th century and really hasn't been updated since the 70s. And at that time, the law said that that water was used for two reasons, two purposes, uh, uh, municipal and industrial and agricultural. And the population back in the 70s in California was about 25 million people. Now, since then, uh, the water supply is now divided up into three. 50% of that captured water, what we call developed water, now goes to environmental protection programs as required by state and federal law. So that's for water quality, uh, endangered species, temperature control, things like that. And 40% goes to agricultural and 10% goes to municipal and industrial. Now of all those reservoirs and, and, and uh, canals, that's actually only about 17% of the available rain and snow in the state. So of that 17%, 50% goes to environmental protection, 40% goes to agriculture and 10% goes to municipal and industrial. Uh, how did that change? Well, uh, put that into context. Now, today, uh, we have almost 50 million people in the state. So we almost doubled the population and we've added a third water user to a system that hasn't been updated since the 1970s. That was only designed for two types of water use. So our relationship to the resource has changed. I'm always very clear to tell people it's not right or wrong. I'm not going to make that value statement, but it's important to realize that the basic infrastructures that you're trying to afford your policy decisions on uh, or your priorities now um, isn't there, but it's part of the solution because you've made it part of the solution. That 50% is man-managed water. And I think there's a misnomer that, oh, that's water for the environment. No, that's water captured by man and dedicated to the environment by man. That's not naturally occurring water. And the last rule of California water, which really ties into what's happening on the ground today, and it's something, it's a new rule. I've had the first two rules since I started my career. But Richard, I came back, and I came back, and I found a third rule of California water, and it's now solid. And the third rule of California water is this system was designed to hold us over, like I said, for three years of drought, even after that 50, 40, 10. It is designed to supply all those water users, even at a rationed rate, but to provide them cushion through three years of drought. However, where we sit currently, and actually last year in uh, 2021, our system was at dead pool, meaning the water levels had fallen below the pumping mechanism, which is where the term yeah. dead pool comes from. Um, that we had fallen to dead pool a year early. So how does that happen? Well, I'll tell you this, this is the third rule. To me, a drought is an act of God or nature, but a water shortage is a decision of man. That was a man-managed situation where the water was allowed to release. We didn't operate the system knowing we were in the middle of a drought cycle. California typically runs on a nine-year cycle. So you'll get like three years of wet, three years of dry, three years of normal in a rotation. We had just come out of in 2019, the wettest year we'd seen in, I think, 150 years. Oh, and wow. so the entire system could have filled three times. And yet in a year and a half, two years, it was a dead pool. That only happens because someone managed it that way. And so we're in this interesting situation today 
where, um, and I, I kind of, you know, I can sit here and beat my chest all day too and say, yeah, you know, rats, they're sending 50% of the water to the ocean and the science is, you know, corrupt. And I, we can get into that too. Um, and I'm happy to do that because I think for the first time ever, it has been overtly made clear that our water supply is a political tennis ball um, between administrations. But more importantly, um, uh, I, I have to sit here and say, look, y'all, we are in a drought. Like there is no denying this is an incredibly dry cycle. Um, however, uh, the question, and when you're in a drought and you all know this, the only thing you can do is buckle down and make on ground decisions to, to survive. Uh, mm -hmm. and then the real question is what happens when it rains. And for us, where we're dependent on a system that is designed to deliver water the way it does, that decision of operation, knowing you as an operator, knowing how you're going to operate that system for when it rains. That is the most important question I can ask any of my decision makers right now at the state or federal level. I had a reporter out with me the other day looking at an almond orchard and um, they, they, they made the mistake of saying, uh, they said two things. They said, so farmers are out there buying, you know, uh, surplus water. And I said, whoa, 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 let's start with there is no surplus water. Um, <laughs> I've got water right now, surface water. Uh, trading at $2,700 an acre foot in places it used to be $100 an acre foot in a normal year. I've got uh, water trading at $2,000 an acre foot in other places uh, where it used to be about $300 an acre foot. So there's no wow. surplus water to be had. And the second thing they said that was so interesting was, uh, you know, well, um, you know, there's all this criticism and you hinted at it too, you know, the criticism around almonds using water. And I said, first of all, let me, I walked them over to the, to this tree and the irrigation that we had. I said, we have 33% reduction in water use in almonds alone in the last 10 years. And we're paced to do it again in the next 10 years. And we have 82% of our acreage using um, a maximum efficiency precision irrigation. And those are massive, as you all know, massive uh, capital investments on a farm. And I said, this farmer right here, which happened to be my dad, I said, but this farmer right here and every farmer in California can tell you exactly where every drop of water goes and what it will do because they are hyper responsible for that resource. But I don't, I can't speak with that confidence of my water managers right now, both at the state mm. and federal level. I don't know what they're going to do with the reservoir when it starts raining again in the fall. And so my big press right now is as an advocate is really working to make sure that my growers have the resources they need to survive and transition uh, because we also now have a uh, coming online, we have a, uh, a sustainable groundwater management act, which is the first time our groundwater has been uh, regulated. Um, and so we're working with state and federal officials to uh, really address what that looks like. And to be honest, what's been entertained has been, oh, you just need to permanently retire 2 million acres of, of land in California. And I said, that's not an option. Um, first of all, what that'll do to the tax revenue of our communities in our rural and disadvantaged communities is absolutely um, a socioeconomic crisis. But the second part of that is, is this is private property and it has value. So is the water beneath it. Um, yeah. Groundwater is acknowledged as a as similar to a mineral right. So you have right of access. And so we're really pushing in the direction of this idea of managing the system and supply in conjunctive use, surface water and the groundwater and protecting our farmers property so that they can flex and change to this new culture. And I think that's really what's going to happen. We're, we're going through an, an interesting advancement uh, and rapid evolution of our cultural practices across agriculture. 
in California, not only from a perspective of what crops will be grown here, but where they'll be grown, how they'll be grown. I think open ground all of a sudden becomes even more valuable in that scenario uh, because of the flexibility it will allow you in your groundwater accounting on your property uh, or in your basin or in your district. Uh, and all of this, you know, we're looking at what's happened in other parts of the country and how they've addressed groundwater issues or quality issues, uh, surface water issues. I watched the Colorado like a hawk um, because that has yeah. a huge amount of uh, impact on what happens in our water management as well. Um, but these are kind of the times that so, we're in. And then long term, you know, I will always be a supporter of increased water storage and more. But um, we've got to survive this this moment first and then start designing our future. Aubrey, thank you for that um, overview of the water situation. You you mentioned something there that I would like to kind of um, just further explore. Part of my work at USDA and then um, since has been on technologies. And I'm sure there are technologies and innovations that farmers are adopting in California with regard to water that could be applicable in all regions of the country. What um, what would one of those look like for California almond farmers? So for us, uh, truly evapotranspiration is becoming and, and the use of LIDAR technologies has become uh, an incredibly powerful precision tool. Um, it's always tricky in agriculture, as you all remember, um, especially coming from the FPAC side, right, the farm services or NRCS side, PII is so important, uh, protecting our information. And so often we find ourselves that the data that could set us free is also the data we're afraid of because it could, could be the, the ax that lops our head off. However, um, I think owning that data and managing it at a local or regional level and really uh, communicating our progress through that data management is key. So that's one of the things we're looking at is definitely evapotranspiration uh, so that we can verify, no, this is exactly how I'm using my land and this is exactly how I'm using the water. Um, and making sure that that data stays protected at the local level is key um, and communicated properly is key. We obviously have invested heavily in um, alternative irrigation, which interestingly enough was so interesting. They, they pushed us into using micro sprinklers and drip and subsurface and super uh, efficient, you know, increase our efficiency by 80 percent. And, um, and then all of a sudden they were like, wow, the aquifers aren't recharging at the rate that they used to. Well, yeah because oh, we are flood irrigating and we're going direct to root zone and it's like so yeah. you know the unintended consequences of these transitions right and so um so i think while we continue to find efficiency and you know if you listen to the stats for almond growers right we already have uh 82 percent of our acreage is in precision irrigation and we're, we've conserved 30 percent we're on track to do another 30. we're going to do another 30 because we're getting even more precise in the yeah. timing of the irrigation, the flushing of the systems, utilizing evapotranspiration data in real time, synchronizing these systems. The amount of artificial intelligence that we're now deploying in agriculture is incredible. Um, it is. You know, uh, for, for learning all of this and for, for, for fine tuning these systems. So these are just some of the things. Fertigation is probably going to be the biggest future for us because of the pressures on pest, um, fertilizer management as well. Great. Thank so, you. Aubrey. Uh, this is this is fascinating. And like I said in the intro, uh, every time I talk to you, I learn something, um, learn something new uh, from certainly a different perspective. So 
we so we know we know the demand for water in agricultural systems. You mentioned dairy again as another um, you know where water is critical for dairy production. Um, I, I would imagine all of the fruit and vegetable and other other production that's in there over those over four hundred commodities that are grown in California. So you and you did mention when you were giving us the overview that the population of California has doubled since the 1970s. So what is what is the what's the relationship? Because I know you and I've talked about this uh, in the past, but what's the relationship between, you know, folks that are needing water that are not farmers and the agricultural community and the and the way that you have crafted communications or you have crafted opportunities to develop relationships with folks outside of agriculture to explain the importance of that and certainly recognizing the importance of water availability for non-ag customers. Uh, that is a relationship we have fostered over a decade. Um, we used to joke around that, you know, when I worked on water management in Australia, that water is either an A issue or a Z issue. So if you have it, it's a Z issue. And if you don't, it's an A issue. And we used to say, can we just keep it like at like a D? <laughs> Can we just keep it always sort of floating there as a priority? And we have in a lot of ways, because uh, especially Southern California, um, Metropolitan Water Authority and the urban basin there has done an incredible job of regional investment in their water supply. So they um, they've done a very good job of, of education about the priority of water uh, in a lot of ways. And so uh, over the course of my career, I've done a lot of work in public communication, Spanish language crosses. But interestingly, bring up which populations need water. Because what is so, so very important to realize is that's our macro, totally condensed urban population where it's very easy to control resources, right, in, a, in an urban environment. But our rural and disadvantaged communities, our rural uh, communities are who I worry about the most. And we're actually looking for partnership opportunities because the water quality effects on them, the inability to deliver reliable water to them. Some of them are only on surface water supply. And so when a political decision comes into play that says no surface water can be delivered, somehow these communities get forgotten. And what is so uh, unfortunate to me is the rhetoric that has come out has in implied that farmers don't live in these places and somehow we're the bad guy implicitly in, in hurting them. And, uh, and so we are really trying to turn the narrative around and say, no, we're gonna defend our communities. You don't get to tell me how to protect the community I know and love and live in. I'm gonna take responsibility and protect them myself. So we're actually working on some policy fixes I hope to announce soon. That's wonderful. I know part of my time at USDA was at rural development um, helping those rural communities with water supply issues and water quality issues. And, and I know there's a lot more we could talk about, um, about water in California. Uh, the, this has just been a taste test of all of those issues. And, and hopefully we can have you back, Aubrey. Um, if folks want to learn more or if some of those rural communities want to contact you to, to talk about those partnerships, um, how can they get a hold of you? You know what? Um, you can find us at almondalliance.org. You can reach me at aubrey at almondalliance.org. Great. Great. Well, thank you for being with us, Aubrey. Um, our time has gone very quickly, but hopefully we can uh, talk again soon. Hey, Bobo, do trees tell each other stories? I'm sorry. I'm afraid I don't know that. Hey, why don't we go find out? Listen. Do clouds take naps? 
I couldn't tell you. Dad, do stars visit their friends? Look! Thank you. Welcome back to the Rural Leaders Podcast, um, Dana. That was that was really good, and I knew, I knew, um, you know, that is such a big issue that we didn't yeah, get to near issue. all of our nearly all of our questions. Um, so Aubrey might be a guest again to talk uh, talk about all those issues um, that are water, and certainly there are other. I think there are other issues that um, that are around the water conversation uh, that branch out into um, into other policy decisions and other you know just directions that governments and decisions and so on are ma are made. But I thought it was interesting when. Um, when she mentioned that, you know, certainly the, you know, the, the population centers, you know, folks know that they have got to have water, right? They've got to have water to, to survive and, and to thrive. Um, and she mentioned sometimes that those smaller rural communities are left out, left out of the discussion. And, and I'm pretty confident that uh, just knowing Aubrey like we do, she's not going to let them forget. Um, that there are there are some issues with water in smaller rural communities. That's exactly right. And those issues are very familiar to the farmers and others who make up those rural communities, right? Um, so it was really encouraging for me to hear that she and her um, farmer-led group is really advocating um, so that folks know that those farmers live in those rural communities and need water for their homes as much as they need water for their farms. Um, you know, Aubrey's invitation to uh, rural communities to come together and, and tackle these challenges together was really a takeaway for me. Um, you know, when we have rural communities in Kansas even, um, I was at an infrastructure summit here not long ago where um, the three uh, larger communities in Western Kansas have come together in a coalition to learn from one another about um, systems, about operations, about reuse of water. And those, those coalitions and coming together around problems are really essential uh, to, to tackle them together and, and overcome them together. No, I think that's that that is absolutely right. And you know, I think we used to all be in rural America, I think we used to be all be a little bit more territorial and um uh possessive about our own little space, right? Well, I mm -hmm. think that uh certainly while we still have, you know, Friday night football games, um while that is still paramount, like we want to beat the town, you know, down the highway for sure. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. That when you talk about these bigger issues, um, whether it's economic development or whether it's water or whatever, 
rural connectivity, you know, that that mm -hmm. collaboration and cooperation between multiple communities is going to be critical. Um, and I think it sounds like they're doing that in California um, with some of the some of the things that they're doing with water there. Yeah, definitely. Definitely something that we want to keep in mind for our next guest as well. We're going to have Betty Brands from Virginia with us for our next episode. Um, we'll talk about some of the infrastructure and, and broadband projects that Betty's been a part of and some special projects that she's uh, working on in her home state of Virginia. Um, but until then, if folks have comments or feedback, you have potential guests that you'd like us to bring on to the Rural Leaders Podcast, feel free to reach out to us at Dana at the Rural Leaders Podcast.com or Richard at the Rural Leaders Podcast.com. Until then, please keep making your rural community better and we'll learn from one another as we come together around our problems.